We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. We're talking with Aaron Cooper, Vice President for Global Policy at BSA, the Business Software Alliance, on Privacy, the Hill, Artificial Intelligence. So stay tuned. Where do you think the privacy debate is headed? Well, that's a good question. And there are several layers to that. I think um, we need to think about what's going to happen at the federal level, what's happening at the state levels, and put that together with what's happening around the world. And it's important that um, privacy rules as they get established in different places around the world are consistent enough to be interoperable, but are also specific to um, the uh, the interests of of each different location. So uh, I think at the federal level, you know, we've been working on privacy legislation with the committees of jurisdiction um, for for a while now, for several years. Um, and there's what's encouraging is that there's a real interest on both sides of um, both sides of Congress, both parties, to be pushing for comprehensive federal legislation. And I think that's that's a really important development. Why do you think that is? As, I think as people are using technology more, um, we as a population are recognizing how important it is to make sure that our data is protected. Um, and, and it can be for any number of reasons. And we each have probably different levels of tolerance of how we expect Data, data that we are uh, providing to a company to be used, but the the value that that the data brings to companies, to governments, to individual citizens is is huge, and it's only going to be valuable if we can also protect the privacy along with it. Um, and, and that's why I think you see a bipartisan, bicameral approach. Uh, there are differences in different pieces of legislation and on both sides of Capitol Hill about what exactly that should look like. But I think the core tenants are very similar. What are those core tenants? Uh, that consumers really deserve to have the right to control when their data is going to be used and how it's going to be used, that it should be used um, in accordance with their reasonable expectations based on the services that they're using, uh, that they should have a right to access the data, uh, know what data is being collected. Um, and to make sure that data is being kept securely. Um, and, you know, we, that has been a set of principles that um, dates back to the um, work that the BIPs, to yeah. the BIPs right? Yeah. Um, and we see it develop into slightly different language and different rules in different places in Europe, in Japan, in Singapore. Uh, but the core tenets are the same. And I think um, that's, that, that's an important place to be able to say, People on, on all sides of the aisle and uh, around uh, around D.C. can all come together on, on those principles. And then how exactly we implement them um, is, is what we need to work out. Do you think that companies are willing to tell people what they're collecting and how they're using it? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, we already see a lot of that. Um, I mean, our, our companies, um, the enterprise software space, are doing business around the world, and there are requirements to um, provide notice. Um, and uh, here in the U.S., we also 
a lot of our companies, first of all, are, are uh, following um, the GDPR in terms of consumer rights and with California coming on law, uh, online, that's important too. Uh, but customers are demanding to, to know how their data is being used. I mean, it is increasingly um, important just as a business perspective, in addition to being the right public policy outcome, um, and uh, to have companies disclose what what they what they do with data and make sure that it's being done in accordance with what the consumer expects is um, is important. Do you think you'll need a common format for disclosure? I mean, we don't have one now. I mean, it's sort of everyone does their own thing. Yeah, I, I think you know it needs to um, be specific enough that um, that. The companies aren't using it, um, using language to try to get around uh, uh, being being candid, but it also needs to be understandable enough so that um, we don't consumers don't need to read through thirty pages to to know what's generally going to be used. The, I think really the most important thing is um, to think about what the customer would expect their data to be used for, and if your company and you're using data in ways that if it showed up on the front page of the New York Times, you'd be pretty embarrassed about. That's probably a way you don't want to use data. Um, thinking about what, in, in some context, processing data about location makes perfect sense because I've got I'm using a mapping program. In other contexts, it makes no sense because I'm using a flashlight program, and it's using that kind of common sense model that's really important and having the rules apply across the board. Do you think we need regulation to get there? Or are we going to need legislation? Or the voluntary model maybe hasn't worked out as well as we might have hoped. Yeah, one of the problems in just relying on a voluntary model is that not everybody has to do the same thing. And not a, and um, as soon as you have companies um, really acting in different ways, then consumers get confused. And rightly so, because they don't know what company is uh, following a set of best practices and what it, which ones aren't. Um, and I think that brings down the entire ecosystem. And, and so um, we, we've been advocating for a federal standard for a while because um, the rights that you have as a consumer should be consistent across companies and across the country so that your rights in California and your rights in New York and your rights in Oklahoma are the same um, in terms of um, knowing how your data is going to be used and how you're allowed to access it. So one thing I say to inflame the privacy advocates is that Privacy is a, a historical artifact. We had these big industrial cities where it was easy to be anonymous and anonymity is gone in the digital world. So what does privacy look like when we're all connected, when we're all on a network? Well, I think, yeah, so it, it continues to evolve and change. And it, I think it evolves and changes in different ways. In, in one sense, it's going to evolve and change because the types of services that uh, people are using evolve. And so, uh, whereas I'm, I might have at one point not wanted people to know where I was driving, now I want to use a map program that's connected and that's going to change the, that aspect of, of privacy. But I'm doing it intentionally and I know I'm doing it. The other way I think it's going to evolve over time is that um, consumers are going to continue to have evolving senses of how comfortable they are with their data being used. And, and partly that's going to depend on how well it's protected by companies. Um, but those, those expectations are key. And I think it's one of the reasons that we see slightly different laws on um, what, uh, what privacy rights exist in different places in, like I said, Europe, 
Japan, Australia, Singapore, and, and the U.S. I like that phrasing, evolving sense of comfort, because what I usually say is uh, uh, the tech generation, the digital natives, whatever you want to call them, they, don't, they aren't as hyper about privacy in most circumstances as uh, previous generations. And that almost always inflames the privacy groups, but evolving sense of comfort might be a good way to put it. And I'd say it's, it's different, different kinds of uses might, be, might make different people more comfortable or less comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's important. So this, this wasn't on our list, but it's raised by it, which is, uh, and I'll give you a privacy example since you brought it up a couple times. I uh, downloaded one of these uh, map programs and um, the map program, program wanted access to my contacts, my email, uh, my phone book, uh, a whole set of data that had nothing to do with driving around. So I, um, so I uninstalled it, right? And in that case, there are alternatives, right, to uh, uh, map, uh, mapping your, uh, your, your, um, your, uh, your location. Um, but in other cases, there aren't alternatives. So does privacy have an antitrust implication? Uh, I, I think that um, there's such a premium now on privacy protection and data security data security more broadly or cybersecurity, making sure that there aren't breaches, that we, we see competitors competing on the basis of privacy and security. So that phenomenon of <clears throat> there's only one service and I'm going to have to give all my data to them and I have no choice, take it or leave it, I think is really not realistic anymore uh, because there there's so much interest from um, consumers in making sure that there's privacy and that has led to more competition. I think uh, what we need to see more of is companies continuing to compete on um, what types of privacy protections and consumer controls they're providing. What would an ideal privacy transparency platform look like? Like, you know, the the old model used to be a dashboard where you could go and look and see what was being collected and what it might be used for. But what, that's kind of old. A dashboard is so 1990s. What do what do we what do we what's an ideal model now? Yeah, I th- I think it's really hard to have one specific model because the uses are so different. Um, I, I've seen in in legislation um, uh, around privacy uh, over the last couple of years, we've seen uh, suggestions for uh, having both detailed um, privacy transparency guidelines and a short, um, more easy more easy to digest paper, uh, but. We often think of this privacy debate as um, basically the social media companies and uh, the way they might be using data. But there are so many other ways that data gets used. And to have a one-size-fits-all approach to how you're going to describe it, I think it's going to be difficult. A dashboard might work for different social media companies or it might work for different mapping companies uh, or mapping services. It doesn't work quite as well in the enterprise software context because the you're going to want to have much more detailed conversations with the company that you're doing business with. But as we move to a world where everything is connected, uh, the amount of data generated is going to be overwhelming. So soon your car, if your car isn't already a data collector, it's the one place I still feel I have a slight degree of control because I've gone around turning off everything that would be reporting 
Um, but soon that will be impossible. What do you do when your car becomes a data collector? What is the responsibility of car companies or does it go somewhere else? Well, I, I, so I, one of the difficulties in trying to figure out things like whose responsibility is it in, in the uh, example of, uh, of a car company is you're going to have different companies and different car, what we think of as car companies using different models of uh, how services are provided. Some are going to be more of an open model. Some will probably be more of a closed model. Uh, I think the, the kind of dichotomy that we see in um, both the California law and GDPR between what are essentially the controller of the data, the one that's interfacing with the, um, with the consumer and making the decisions about um, how data is going to be used versus the processor, which is providing the tools to, to process that, that consumer data is a good way of starting the conversation and looking at it. If it's um, whoever is making that decision about how data is going to be, how the data is going to be used is the one that should be having the conversation with the end user, the customer um, about um, the, the terms by which it's going to uh, process data. Where does ownership fit into this? I mean, that um, there's a related question about public domain, but let's start with, uh, with ownership. So, uh, I use the service, it generates data. I am asserting I have some right to that data, even though it's held by someone else. In fact, you could argue it wouldn't exist if they hadn't collected it. So um, what do you think about ownership? So uh, I, I think in, in a lot of contexts, um, ownership is a heavily negotiated issue between companies. So again, you know, the BSA, we represent the enterprise software space and the conversations that they have with their customers about how data is going to be used and who, um, who gets to control both the data and the insights from the data is something that, that the two parties negotiate. And most of our companies focus a lot on um, make, because they compete on this, making it so that the customer's data remains the customer's data. Their insights that come from that data remain the insights of, of that company. Um, but, it's, but it's a heavily negotiated, or it, it is a negotiated term between, between two businesses. And what, what I think makes the overall debate really complicated is go back to the, uh, what we were talking about earlier that we often think of privacy in a Facebook, Twitter, or Google kind of way. And that is only one aspect of, um, of the way data is collected and used. Is the enterprise model a good model for consumers? Does it work for them? It, it, it does. Um, but, but I think that, um, when you're, I think that it wouldn't necessarily work for our, for all consumer interactions. I think you want to make sure that if if I as an individual want to be using a map program, uh, that uh, that that I, because because the trans you want to make the transaction costs as small as possible, providing more um, clarity and transparency and uh, ease of use to the consumer becomes much more important. Yeah. What. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of artificial intelligence writ large, which is basically uh, one way to think about it is you're going to be automating more processes. So the question, the question is the same question we had as soon as you got computers, which is how can I automate this so I don't have to think about it? And is privacy one of the things that AI might actually make better? Because it makes you manage, it lets you manage, it lets you know, I mean, well, what one can imagine a service that um, 
learns what my privacy preferences are, what my personal um, concerns about how data is going to be used are, and uses that information at my request to create the right privacy controls on different services that I use. I think that is a that is a possibility. Another way that I think um, AI systems and, and improved software is going to be helpful in, in privacy is in improving the way that we anonymize data. There's, there's so much data that can be useful, um, not on a not as a way to serve ads, but as a way um, to identify what kind of molecules are most effective in treating a pandemic. And there's some component of personal information that might always be there unless we get continue to get better at how we do differential differential privacy or other um, uh, mechanisms to uh, to be able to anonymize the data. I tend to, um, I've been trying this line on a few people. I think other people are using it too, which is, so I am always embarrassed when I say AI, it's shorthand, it's like a lot of the cloud and whatever else we used to say. But um, if you, I've been telling them, take AI and replace it with the word software, right? And then is it AI spells the end of the human race? Oh, that's scary. Software spells the end of the human race. Just it just doesn't have the buzz, you know. <laughs> uh, and I also I think uh, with the, with the pandemic and with people starting to do much more from home, remote economy, remote health, remote education, uh, people are interfacing with software in ways that they weren't before, and it becomes it becomes more of a natural thing to be using um, different video services and um, different platforms for, for podcasts and um, different tools to be able to collaborate. Um, and that's frankly where a lot of our companies come in. Um, we put together a response and recovery agenda uh, in part because there are a lot of important policy issues that we need to get right if we're going to enable the use of those services in a way that protects privacy, that protects security. Um, as we're using more of these tools, identity management becomes a much more important thing. And um, we, we want to try to help convey the message that um, we need to be careful, governments, companies, uh, individuals, as you're uh, starting to, to, to do more remotely, that part of uh, the considerations is uh, making sure that you can trust the services that you're using. NIST has been doing, I think, a really good job in getting out best practices and uh, um, uh, the, the new CISA has as well. And I think um, those kinds of things are really important because uh, we're, we moved so quickly towards uh, digital transformation in places that weren't anticipated to move quite as quickly you know, three, four, five months ago. Who's doing this at NIST? Uh, I, I think it's Jeff Green and... Uh, oh, great. Yeah, I know he moved out there. So that was a good move uh, for everybody. Yes. And, and, they, and they put out and they put out some good some good stuff, uh, which, which I think is... You know, education is an important part of cybersecurity. And um, it's good to have the government doing that. Since you brought it up, where do you think we are on identity management? I used to write about this all the time, in part because I was like present at the creation. And so there's that moment when it was really small and we thought we could have an overarching solution. Remember PKI, I can't even remember, key escrow. Like, we'll just do this one policy and everybody will have a secure identity. 
them days are gone, but, but where are we now? The federated approach, which I also did in the first Bush administration, did not work for a whole set of reasons, commercial and privacy. But where are we now? I mean, what, what's in the pipe? Well, we have, we have companies uh, that are VSA members that do a very good job of providing identity management services. And, and, and I think it's, that's an important component of, uh, of, of a few different things. I mean, I think now it is both it is consumer convenience. We want to be able to switch back and forth. It is uh, being able to put the right controls on from a, from a company or from an enterprise perspective, from a government perspective. Um, and it uh, is, is a really helpful aspect of um, general cybersecurity hygiene um, to make sure that you, you know who is access, who has authority to access what kinds of materials. Do you think the solution is going to be with uh, enterprises rather than with uh, identity providers i mean it's not for a while there i can't even remember and trust maybe i hope they're not a member there were companies who were going to be in the identity what was that one um uh, there were companies that were going to offer identity as a service i don't think that worked i mean i i may have tried that in 2007 so it's been a while but now it looks like it's the enterprises so you know you have your, your Google ID and your Apple ID and your your maybe your Oracle ID and your Microsoft ID. Like Okta is a good example of a company that does um, uh, specializes in identity management and what was that um, one? Okta. Oh, don't know them. It's, it's a really important service that gets integrated into other companies' products and services. And that's a backroom operation. Yeah, we see a, we see a lot. I think in in the software industry of uh, companies that are that, that collaborate on tools so that you have the best of the cyber, best cybersecurity tools, best visualization tools, and they can be packaged together, identity management and so on. Um, and, and so there's a whole you know there's a whole stack. We used to talk about the stack as the cloud, right? The different the infrastructure layer, the platform, software as a service. There's also more of a horizontal aspect of it um, where you want your your enterprise software suite to include all of those services and have them be able to um, interoperate, which is a huge part of what companies do now. Um, the interoperability has become more and more important for everyone. That's actually what I was going to ask is when you were talking, the word that popped into my head was interoperability. So from a consumer, let's talk about enterprise and consumer, but consumers first, how important is it to consumers to have uh, interoperable identity uh you know so the how long have we been listening to the fact that people might have four million passwords if they're doing a good job if they're doing a bad job they have one password for all of these things but where do you rank interoperability for enterprises and for consumers i, I think it's i think it's really important in both uh there's interoperability of the way the systems work together and then there's also making sure that where where you can you you have the right protection for your identity for your password identity management system, um, but it might be that you need more than one for for a variety of reasons, right? Um, and I think we, while we want systems to be interoperable, we also want to make sure that um, companies can put controls on it to make sure that anything that's interoperating with it is uh, also safe and secure. Um, so, so it's not as simple as just saying interoperability, but there's a, there is a movement towards interoperability that I think is 
good for the entire ecosystem. It's good for companies, but it's also good for consumers and security in general. What would drive that standards uh, legislation? I mean, what what do we need to get interoperability? Uh, I, I think companies are moving there because uh, the, because customers are demanding it because there's um, specialization that different service providers have that can be useful for the broader platform. Uh, we're focused a lot these days on um, open data kind of issues, trying to make sure that companies are able to um, to share data among themselves in a privacy and security protective way, but in a way that can benefit um, benefit everybody and, and help break down the data divide. Um, and, and I think the, the interoperability of systems is a little bit different, but it's but it's 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 on a spectrum of the more companies are able to collaborate in a way that protects privacy and security, the better everyone will be. So um, one thing we were supposed to talk about, <laughs> this has been great, but <laughs> we were supposed to talk about how the pandemic has changed the privacy debate. So now, uh, 25 minutes into our conversation, how do you, <laughs> how do you think, the, I actually don't think it's changed it that much, but I'm, I'm not 100% confident in that. So, I mean, the pandemic has changed a lot of things, right? Um, and, and I think in the privacy context, one of the things that it's done is uh, it, it has accelerated the learning curve for people that weren't focused on this before. I, I think uh, before the pandemic hit, when, uh, when we talked about privacy, we were talking about social media and serving ads, or at least that's what most people were, were, were thinking about. Uh, inside this little bubble that we have here, um, different capitals around the world, we were talking about controller and processor distinctions, and we were talking about the way different uh, variety of different uh, companies use data in different ways. I think uh, the focus on um, using data to figure out how the pandemic is, how the uh, COVID is spreading, uh, figure out what molecules might be most effective in treating and or um, or preventing the disease. Those kinds of discussions get elevated in in popular press in a way that uh, I think accelerates the learning curve for people outside of that bubble to think about different ways data is used and the importance of privacy there. Uh, and I think that's that's helpful and constructive. Um, I think it gave a little bit of breathing room to the hill as well, which is which is probably good. Uh, because there was a lot of uh, a lot of movement uh, before the pandemic hit, and a lot of drafts that were coming out. And as we talked about before, there's a lot of consistency in those drafts in in the overall consumer rights. But there are also places where there are, there are differences that that didn't seem to be getting resolved. And I think being able to take a step back and look at where there are commonalities rather than where there are differences can help move a bipartisan process forward. The privacy debates around. Uh, track and trace um, and um, COVID-specific issues, I think, has has put that debate on a, on one track. But I, but I'm still pretty hopeful that um, the, the the step back from the pressure to produce comprehensive drafts will help um, staffs and, and members of Congress collaborate on what they're really trying to get to. So you think this is one of the few remaining bipartisan issues in Washington? I think it is definitely, it is bipartisan and bicameral. Uh, and that's a really important thing. Wow. Uh, when, when, I, when I used to work on the Hill many years ago, um, it, it, 
what I learned was while while members of Congress will go after each other because they disagree on on political on political issues, they also want to find places where they can advance a common agenda, and it helps help build relationships and develop better policy. Um, and I think privacy is one of those issues that while there are some disagreements on preemption and private right of action, the general thrust of protecting consumer privacy is there on both sides of the aisle. Um, and I think it and security um, are, are uh, bipartisan issues and will stay that way. Hmm. What do you think the odds are for legislation this year? I, usually my assumption is in an election year, everything is put on hold. But where, um, where do you think we are? Yeah, I think, you know, a combination of the election year, the pandemic, um, lots of other really important issues um, going on. Um, but by the, by the time this podcast airs, there will there will be several others as well. Right. And uh, I, I think there are so many things that um, that are urgent that this might not happen this year. But I think the good thing about work on on privacy legislation and issues like it is that uh, they can carry over from Congress to Congress and um, you usually get uh, good institutional knowledge built up. These are members of Congress and their staff start to understand what the uh, different dynamics from industry and public interest and different parts of, of those communities um, care about. And that helps uh, shape legislation that can ultimately become law. One of the things that we um, noted, polling data suggests that Americans in particular, but really people around the world, are not comfortable with uh, uh, virus tracking. Uh, they don't. The most we saw was maybe 40%, someplace like that. That was an optimal uh, estimate. Most people don't like virus tracking. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, is that? I don't, I don't have a good idea on that. I think, though, that um, where it's getting rolled out or where it will get rolled out, um, making it clear to people who plan to use it, how it will be used and how it will not be used becomes extremely important. Um, to the extent that people are nervous about it, it probably comes back to um, trust. And that's a combination of trust with, uh, with the government, with companies. Um, but the more transparency governments and companies that plan to roll this out can, can provide, um, and the more limitations they will put on themselves on the, on the use of it, I think the more of an uptake it'll, it'll get. One of the things that surprised me, so originally I thought you could slice it uh, three ways. You could slice it four ways, actually. The, the consumer-facing companies, like the big social media platforms, um, health companies, agencies, and then government law enforcement agencies. And that's kind of the not exactly the spectrum, but nobody wants to give law enforcement any access. So okay, I'm fine with that. You know, it just it's it's the political reality. Um, it wasn't clear that they were willing to give uh, government um, health agencies, and I don't know if that's discontent or or what. But who who do you think is best placed to manage this stuff to the extent we move ahead with it? P putting aside all the other issues, like the fact that it. Like it or not, it has it's opt-in, and most people won't opt-in. But who's who's best place to manage this? Um, that's one where I'm afraid I don't have a good enough answer. And, and I, I, I think that it probably does depend on what the um, – different governments are going to think about using it for different purposes. 
um, with different levels of um, encouraging their citizens to use it, and that'll probably have an effect. So one of the one of the issues, and this touches on it, is you know we've got companies who are operating in a global market, um, but they're facing uh, varying and very different, in some cases, national rules. Pandemic's a good example. You know, in in a few smaller countries, monitoring is mandatory. It's like do it. Um, in other countries like the United States, it's voluntary and most people opt out. What do companies have to think about when they look at privacy with them having to service a, a global market? I mean, does that mean you need OECD guidelines or G20 guidelines or what? what's the, do we, we all just say, okay, we'll just do GDPR because that's easy. That's by the way, the hope in Brussels. <laughs> You know uh, that. No, it, it, it provides a lot of complications. So interoperability among privacy systems is really important to companies like ours that operate globally. Um, we put out a bunch of, we put out uh, BSA's recommendations for global best practices on privacy. Um, and, and we did that because we started, as we start to see uh, variations in different laws in different places around the world, it becomes it becomes difficult. Uh, there are, there are a couple of different variations on that difficulty. You can have the kind of difficulty that is um, just if you're comply if if you have one system for for compliance as a company around the world, you could choose the most privacy protective system, and that's 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 one model. But in some places, you're going to end up with inconsistent rules in different places, and it's that inconsistency. Um, that really creates difficulty because there's no way to comply with both sets of laws. And, and that's one of our concerns in the U.S. If there's a state-by-state -state approach is that those, those laws become, become incompatible with each other. Um, but I think there's a lot of consensus around the consumer rights that are in the GDPR. Then there are some other um, aspects of the GDPR, uh, data transfers and, and other things that, that give more concern um, for companies and are harder to to try to export and apply in different places. But um, it, it's it's best, I think, for companies when possible to be able to apply one standard um, within markets. We also understand that there are going to be very there can and should be variations in different places based on the um, the cultural um, uh, sensitivities to privacy in different places. But the the key is making them interoperable so that you have uh, a way of, of providing um, similar and consistent rights in different places. Yeah, I think that one's going to grow more important as you have uh, larger consumer devices connecting. So your, your car will be made in Germany. It will send data back to Germany. And then how, what do you, how do you get insight to that? What rules operate? Is it GDPR? And that's both a privacy issue and the ability to transfer data across borders. And those two things sometimes go together. They don't always go together. But the data transfer issues um, are, are becoming really important, um, not just to our companies, but to, to really to every industry. We, um, we put together a global data alliance to focus specifically on data localization and data flows and, and brought together companies that are in different industries to be part of the alliance. And, and it's because the example that you just gave is a, is a really good one. You've got a car made in one, uh, one place that has employees in another place that has 
um, as to combine its uh, the data that it's getting with data from uh, cars that are somewhere else in the world and being able to collect that data is how you can get the best results for consumers, but you have to be able to transfer data uh, in order to be able to, uh, to process it together. Sometimes when you talk to uh, people in Brussels, they talk about they talk about a bunch of things, but one of them is technological sovereignty. Another one is data sovereignty. And so, you know, the, uh, a, a leader of a major European country is alleged to have said that she didn't want to be a, a data colony of the United States. Um, what do you think about data sovereignty? Is it, uh, I just, I, you know, I'm all for it, except I don't see how it would actually work. Right, because yeah, so I think a bank, a car company, an airline. I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, I think um, the technology sovereignty and data sovereignty, to the extent that what they are what they are talking about is being able to give their um, citizens, wherever it is, the choice of what technology to use. Um, I, that that that's a good way of looking at it. I think the the data strategy that came out of Europe was was really positive. Um, you know, there's didn't agree with everything in it, but I think it had a lot of really good ideas, uh, good ideas around open data, uh, support for data flows. But it should, at the end of the day, give consumers wherever you are in the world um, the freedom to sovereignty to choose the service that you want. And if that means that as a customer, I want my data to be localized on my server in my house, that's I, I should have that choice if I want to be able to combine it with. Um, data sets um, elsewhere, or I want to be able to access it from another country, I should be able to transfer it. But it's that kind of the, the sovereignty that I should have to be able to, to make that choice that's important. Well, I wouldn't recommend that anybody decide to keep their data in their uh, home uh, server. That strikes me as a bad idea. But, but I guess if they want it, you know. Um, but, but of course, you know, that's, that's, that's how computing starts, right? You, I mean, we are now used to the cloud and we're now used to everything being stored there, but that's, that's an evolution. Yes, the, I, I, I dimly remember the Stone Age. That's right. <laughs> I, I, one of my, um, when I was young, uh, I remember the first computer my father brought home in order to load programs. We had audio cassettes that you yeah, put in. Really? And wow. 40 minutes later, um, you could play, uh, you could, uh, there was a, you could play video, very, very oh, Atari video games. Yeah. Free Atari, yes. Yeah. Wow. That, that, um, yes, that's, that is the Stone Age. Um, so a couple final questions because we're coming to the end of the time here. But what do your companies think about the pandemic? What do they think it's changed for their, their business environment, their regulatory environment? What are they expecting as they look ahead? Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's changed, it's changed a lot for everybody, right? But one of the things that we were, uh, well, I'll say I was extremely impressed about was uh, right after the pandemic, we started seeing all of our companies that have services that can be really useful for governments and first responders deploying those services, um, not charging for them, making teams available for classrooms, um, uh, ServiceNow put together a platform for first responders. IBM put their compute power in, and, and the list goes on and on. And you can find it at bsa.org. Uh, <laughs> I was very impressed with uh, how quickly they all responded with a sense of, of civic responsibility. They're also thinking about as as there's more demand on the system, more demand on on 
the collaborative tools that they have on video conferencing tools on ramping up to make sure that they can meet the demands in a privacy protective security protective way there are additional security concerns that come with more people using services that they weren't using before and yeah, we work very closely with them on our response and recovery agenda because there are a lot of issues that are going to go into how using software can improve the ability of employees to collaborate for companies to reach consumers for governments to provide services to uh to their citizens and the software plays an important role there and, and they take that responsibility seriously mm-hmm. Has it changed their business model at all? Are they offering different products? Or? From what I can tell, they're adapting their products to the speed at which the remote environment has taken off. But it's it's I think it's it's the tools are similar. It's just that they are there's a demand for them in a way there wasn't before, and a demand for capacity that goes along with it. And you know one of the, one of the things that I think has changed as a result is they've been focused on workforce and workforce development issues for a while. We've always been concerned about making sure both both making sure that, that people have the right um, STEM education uh, opportunities, but also understanding that there's going to be changes in the labor market, and we need to be thinking about how how the software industry is part of the solution. I really see that accelerating with people working from from home more and doing remote education and so on is there's more of a premium, I think, and importance on making sure that companies are helping get consumers, customers, educators, government uh, officials up to speed with how to use the technology and use it in a safe way. So do you think this is one of those, uh, I've been trying to figure this out, one of those watershed moments where there's a before and an after, it usually doesn't work that way. So you know, work from home, greater reliance on technology. Will we, how much will we go back to the norm once house arrest or work from home is over? Yeah, well, I think it's going to dramatically accelerate how people move to the cloud and start using those kinds of services. It's not that that wasn't happening before, it clearly was, but we're all doing it in a different way now. I think, you know, for some industries, it's going to be really difficult to to bounce back because of um, because because of the nature of different industries and not all work can be done remotely. So we've talked a lot about in this conversation we talked a lot about ways that you can use software to try to to, to deal with some of the, the issues that are created by the pandemic. But not not all jobs are, are can you do that with and and we need to be really cognizant of that as well. We we need people out on the streets and we need people not not just working remotely but but where they are, we're trying to be as helpful as we can in providing tools. Yeah, that's a different conversation. It turns out to be really complicated, which is uh, uh, universal basic income. I, we're going to be driven to it, but I don't think we're going to be driven to it this year because of COVID. You know, it just for one thing, we haven't figured out cost. We haven't figured out, you know, who gets compensated. But I think that that will be one of the effects of AI is that you'll have, I hope, a much more productive economy and we'll have to find a better way to share that. We're going to, yeah, there's definitely going to be, there are going to be transitions, right? There are going to be transitions before uh, the pandemic. Those transitions might look different now and in some cases sped up and in some cases not, but we all need to be thinking about what, what jobs of the future look like and be part of the solution in, in preparing everybody for it. 
So what's uh, BSA's post-COVID agenda? What do you guys have on your list to, to do list? Well, so part of the response and recovery agenda that we um, put out at the end of May, uh, we talked through a lot of the issues that for, for the recovery phase, in addition to the, the response phase, are going to be important. And I think those are issues that are going to last for a while. They're, they're around broadband access because... Uh, even if your job might be susceptible to, to to working remotely or you can do remote education, if you don't have access and you can't do a video conference as we're doing right now, it, it doesn't apply to you. And we need to we need to fix that. Um, we we need to make sure that data can be transferred. That's a that's a huge issue for uh, for companies in a in a remote environment. Yes, transferred between who? Uh, cross borders. So even even if the even if your doctor is providing you telehealth services from from within the same borders, the odds are a lot of the information is going to bounce off servers in different places. And, and cross-border data flows are going to be really important to the architecture of the system and where different services plug in. And I think that's uh, that, that's an important component of what we'll be working on going forward. Privacy and security are, are huge. And, and then I'd, I'd add AI is, um, well, it includes a lot. Well, AI policy includes a lot of those issues we've discussed. It's, it's, it takes on a special resonance, I think, uh, as an artificial intelligence service. And you see the European Commission is doing a lot um, to, to get ready for regulations around, around AI. I mean, I think we'll, we'll certainly spend a lot of time on it because uh, you know, we are conscious that there are, there can be, there are, definitely can be unintended consequences of the use of AI and perpetuating bias and, and, un, and unfairness in ways that aren't intended. And we need to, uh, companies need to do what they, what, what they can to help prevent that from, from happening. And that's a big focus as well. Okay, that's a pretty full agenda. Did we, um, we should talk about, we're doing a separate project on AI and uh, facial recognition. Uh, that's pro facial recognition. You know, this is this is good. AI is good. That's sort of our motto, at least for me in this program. And pushing back against some of the sillier, what I would call silly, concerns about AI in particular. So you can never make too much fun of uh, of uh, the Terminator, uh, which unfortunately many people who work with CSIS seem to think is a documentary. <laughs> so. Um, so just we'll, we'll get there, but um, the part that always baffles me is that so AI is not is not new. I mean, I when I was a negotiator, I was negotiating neural networks, and that was twenty years ago, right? And people, you know, when they call the airline it, and it it has the the voice that asks what do you want to do, that's AI, and so AI has already been woven into the fabric of the economy. I'm not sure why people get so excited about it. Well, it's going to be used more and more in different contexts, right? So the the advances in computing power and the improvements in algorithms have made the use of forms of AI more ubiquitous. And we talk self-driving cars, which is the other thing that everybody thinks about all the time uh, with, with AI. There's also more... People are going to interact with it more in ways that affect the physical world more than in the past. Sure. And um, that brings out uh, both the privacy and security issues because self-driving car that isn't secure is not a good thing. But it also 
like leads to new questions about how 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 involved humans are in the decision making process and it's important that at the end of the day on important decisions that there's a person that has looked at it and made a decision and also that the data that they're basing it on and that there are the data that the AI system is making a recommendation on doesn't unintentionally have bias woven into it or perpetuating a discriminatory effect that uh, we really need to be fixing. And so it's, it's a focus for companies as they're getting closer to using these systems. Yeah, although I'm not, I'm not holding my breath for self-driving cars. In some limited circumstances, I think you'll see self-driving buses or self-driving trucks, but it'll be a while before you see self-driving cars. So anyhow, is there anything we missed, Aaron? Anything you want to add? No, this is this is wonderful. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode. Thank you.